Welcome to the Farming Basics Podcast with Olivia Fuller. We'll have sustainable farming tips from growers across the state and extension specialists at Auburn University. Welcome back. It's Olivia Fuller and Jacob Kelly. And today we have Anthony Abade here with us. He is with the B-Lab and lots of super fun things to talk about with that research that's going on here at Auburn. So we're really excited to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for meeting up with us, Anthony. First off, tell us a little about yourself. How'd you get in this line of research? Did you get stung by a bee? And you're like, that's the one. That's what I want to (laughs) do. Yeah, so I originally grew up in New York. So, uh, yeah, I, I went to school in North Carolina for my undergraduate studies. And then from there, I went to the University of Florida and did a master's degree. And then now I'm here in Auburn, Alabama, where I recently completed a Ph.D. last year. And now I'm working as a postdoctoral uh, researcher for the Auburn University Honeybee Lab. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that that exists here. I really do, because it was just coming about when I was graduating from Auburn. And I was so upset that I didn't get to be a part of it at that time. But Oh, yeah. And it's it's grown quite a bit now. I mean, there's upwards of 20 plus, maybe even 30 plus people that are working there now, like including uh, graduate students, technicians, undergraduate students. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people there now. I love that. I love that everybody's so interested in bees and pollinators. Um, And it's, you know, a cool thing to study and to learn about and to kind of do some scouting in your yard to see what's out there. But so why are they so important? Over 80% of the world's flowering plants actually rely on animal pollinators. And about three-fourths of the world's uh, food crops are dependent upon insects for pollination. So for many flowering plant species, insects are crucial uh, pollen vectors for producing seeds and fruits. So the global value of insect pollination, including managed bees such as honeybees, bumblebees, you know, leafcutter bees that are utilized in agricultural systems, uh, as well as wild bees, it's estimated to be about $180 billion. I mean, that's wow. billion mm-hmm. with a B. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I think that's, that's proof of why it's so important that on like a farming podcast, we have you on here because <laughs> it's so important for the farmers to take that into consideration. Absolutely. And I mean, just talking about, you know, the United States, like narrowing it down instead of a global focus, like the United States, uh, you know, bees contributed about 11% of uh, the nation's gross domestic product in 2009. That equals $14.6 billion in, you know, agricultural products and that's provided by, you know, bees in general. So that's, yeah, it's, it's a lot wow. that goes into it. And that's native bees and honeybees, too. I wanted to differentiate the two so that the listeners aren't confused when we're talking about one or the other, because honeybees are actually not native. Yep. And I, I I didn't know that for a long time. They're European. <laughs> Most people don't. Most yeah. people, you know, they've been here for so long, people just don't even realize that. But yeah, they're, they're a non-native species. But And but it's yeah. our native bees that do more of the pollinating. So when I work with farmers, I try and... Uh, you know, I think a lot of our listeners know that I work with a pollinator program and helping farmers know how to plant for them. So, oh yeah, it's really cool that we have you here to kind of get into the nitty gritty of what's going on. Absolutely, and and it's not only that you know wild bees are part of the picture when it comes to pollination for you know these agricultural systems. It's that most of the time 
your native bee species are actually more efficient at pollinating these crops than, say, the honeybee. And, and there are certain reasons for that, too. You know, when it's really rainy and cold, you know, honeybees aren't actually out there actively foraging. But if you went out there on a rainy and cold morning, you'd see that native bees are active and they are visiting flowers and pollinating them when honeybees aren't. So, mm-hmm. And I think that, so the bee lab studies both, right? Yeah. So our lab is basically split. We have, uh, you know, in the one native or in the one, uh, you know, bee lab, we are split between honeybee research and native pollinator research. That's great. I, I really do love that because mm-hmm. both are so important. I mean, honey's amazing, and, you know, when you think of bees, that's often what you think of, but mm-hmm. both are so important. So I'm glad that Auburn's doing that research to get that information to the farmers. Well, Anthony, we hear all the time the bees are declining, the bees are declining, we've got to help our bees. Are our pollinators out there in decline? Yeah, they are. So there's good evidence that both commercially managed bees and wild pollinators are in decline. So if we're just, you know, just talking about the honeybee right now, the Bee Informed Partnership basically puts out surveys to beekeepers every single year. And these surveys include backyard beekeepers that have fewer than 50 colonies, uh, sideliner uh, beekeepers that have between 51 and 500 colonies, and then even commercial beekeepers are, you know, in these surveys, which have 501 or more colonies. So, so big commercial beekeepers. And basically the, the preliminary results that was put out by the Bee Informed Partnership that was uh, took place between April 1st of 2020 and April 1st of 2021. Basically, uh, beekeepers in the United States lost an estimated 46% of their managed colonies. So well, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, so they are uh, declining. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, an alarming number. So, you know, there's there's quite a few issues with that. And then if we're talking just strictly about our native pollinators uh, and specifically native bees, there's also really good evidence that their populations are declining as well, you know, s- certain species. And some of the most important crop pollinators, such as bumblebees, you know, have, have declined dramatically over the past several decades in the United States. But really, it's really difficult to assess all bee species across the whole entire United States. Now, to tell you this, you know, there are 20,000 known native bee species, well, just bee species in general in the world. And in the United States, there's 4,000. So trying to track all 4,000 bee species is, is ex- an extremely hard task. I mean, it's like, it's, it's very hard. So some of the bee species that are really important, say, for pollination services that they provide, you know, maybe they get more, uh, you know, of the spotlight than mm-hmm. others. So there's, a, you know, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but there are some bumblebee species that are really important. Their populations are, you know, have crashed. So And there's a lot of ways um, people, everyone can get involved from farmers planting large scale fields for the pollinators to keep them on their land so that they pollinate their crops when they're needed and then from homeowners participating in like citizen science aspects that a lot of organizations are doing because since there are so many we need everyone involved on this absolutely so why are they declining so again if we kind of start with the honeybee honeybees are exposed to a variety of stressors right so whether the stressors originate from how we manage them, such as you know relating to their nutrition that they're receiving, or how we manage pests within the colony, 
uh, or other stressors associated with the environment, say, including, uh, you know, being exposed to pesticides or how climate change is altering the environment around them, uh, thus, you know, impacting their forageability, uh, what, what forage is actually available for them. And then lastly, honeybees can be exposed to parasites and pests, such as certain types of bacteria, fungi, mites, viruses, all of which cause health issues in the honeybee and, you know, at the individual level and ultimately at the colony level. Yeah, just like us, they get stressed too. And when they're stressed, <laughs> just like us, they're not as healthy as they could be, not as productive, and uh, it's all downhill from there. So keeping them stress-free is the way to be. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, are there any pollinators that are on the endangered species list in the United States? There's a lot of decline out there. I assume that there's some that we may not have for too much longer if we don't do something. Yeah, there there certainly are. And to kind of backtrack just a little bit, you know, just like the the honeybee is going through, you know, declines and, you know, they have stressors that are that we think are, you know, creating these issues that we're seeing in their declining populations. You know, there's evidence that suggests that, uh, you know, anthropogenic or like human uh, derived pressures are the main drivers for pollinator, pollinator declines uh, in the U.S. and the world as a whole. And these really include habitat loss, agricultural intensification, diseases, pesticides use, and the effects of climate change. So, you know, it, it is estimated that about 40% of the world's insect species could become extinct in the next few decades, which is pretty alarming. And, you know, insects that are put on the endangered species list, it's because of these issues that we're seeing and these, these stressors. So according to the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, there's actually 95 species of insects that are that are on that list. And I did not know that, you know, until I looked some of this stuff up. And, uh, you know, some of them, you know, if they're on the endangered species uh, list, it just means that those species are at serious risk of an extinction. And, you know, there are beetles, butterflies, damselflies, moths, grasshoppers, wow. you know, and, and bees are on that list as well. But if we kind of focus on... The bees, seven species in the genus Hylaeus were added to that list back in 2016. Then two bumblebee species, the rusty-patched bumblebee and Franklin's bumblebee, they were added in 2017 and then just last year. So, yeah, all of these insects are threatened due to some sort of stressors that, mm -hmm. you know, are leading to their declines. And it doesn't take much to save them, really, with the with the rusty patch bumblebee, I've seen a lot of, like I mentioned, the citizen science and just people being aware that, oh, we're killing this bee by doing this. You know, that's really helpful to know what's endangered. So I encourage people to look up that list and how they can get involved. And because it seems to, I've read that they're coming out of uh, endangerment by some of those practices being implemented. So that's mm -hmm. encouraging. There are some things that it could be easily reversed by doing. Um, what are some of those steps that are being taken to support that, uh, prevent that loss? The first step is basically monitoring, right? Like you don't know if those populations are declining or increasing or if they're staying stable if you don't if you're not even aware of how their population is doing in the first place, because, you know, there's 4,000 species out there, 
how do you possibly monitor each of those? I mean, it's, it's really difficult, but surveying and monitoring is basically the first step. So there are government programs and there are, you know, universities and researchers that are looking into this. So and our farmers, we encourage them to scout anyways. So that's mm-hmm. that's scouting for the pest, and that's scouting for the beneficial insects too. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, any anybody can learn how to, you know, identify a bumblebee. You know, on the fly. You know, some of them are more difficult to identify, but you know, like your rusty patched bumblebee. I mean, that is very distinctive, and anybody anybody can identify that in the field and be like, oh my gosh, that's you know, that's an endangered species. I'm not gonna you know, collect it or whatever, you know, so. Can we find those in Alabama? No, not here. So they're, they're mostly up in the, um, like, Midwest. Right. Okay. Yeah. What's our common one? Is it the mason bee? Our, our common. Native bee that um, we could find and, like, encourage people to look for. Oh, man, there, there are so many. I mean, we have multiple bumblebee species here. Um, in Alabama alone, there's, like, about we don't really know for sure, but we think there's probably about 350 or so uh, wow. native bee species here. So, um, I mean, all of your common ones, like right now, everybody's seen these carpenter bees flying around, and yeah. they are just yeah. all over the place. So that is a, a really easy one to spot. And if you're not sure if it's a carpenter bee or a bumblebee, I always tell people if it has a shiny butt. It's a carpenter bee, so that's one way to tell it apart from a bumblebee because bumblebees have fuzzy butts. So. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> okay, so who can help support uh, these populations? Literally anybody. Um, I teach a biology course here at Auburn, and we give our, our students wallflower seeds, and you know you can literally plant wallflowers anywhere. Some of my students, I mean, it's their prime example. Some of them live in a house that has a backyard, front yard, and they can, you know, throw some seed on the ground and grow some wallflowers, whereas some of them don't. They may live in a dormitory. Maybe they just have a balcony, but they can they can plant those seeds in pots, and both of those avenues are, are really good for the pollinators in the area. So uh, anybody can do it. But, um, you know, for people that have a lot of land, like farmers, Planting wallflowers can be both beneficial to the landowner and, you know, essentially to the to the pollinators. And that's really exciting because farmers, you know, it's clear how much they need that pollination. You know, it's not all about saving the bees and, you know, putting them first because our farmers are so important. So it's a win-win, though. I want the farmers to be able to increase their yields by planting these things and get more money by doing so. And there's a lot of programs that they can go to to find resources to get that seed. Uh, NRCS has a few programs where they can purchase seeds and get reimbursed for that. A lot of conservation programs out there available to the farmers. So, And it doesn't take much. I Absolutely. Mean, a yeah. little wildflower plot is so crucial. And it's often even you know easier than that. So I always tell people it's it, there's there's two main things that you know bees need. So about 80% of all native bee species nest in the ground. They're ground nesters. You know they don't they don't live in a colony. You know like like the honeybee does. So one thing that you can do is literally just create a patch of bare ground, and 
that is really, really important to supporting bee populations. So you need patches of bare ground or even, you know, leaving dead vegetation standing because bees will nest in the hollowed out twigs and stems. But also, in addition to providing them with, you know, nesting resources, you have to provide them with wallflowers. So there's really two main components in supporting their populations. And if you can, if you can do both, like in one location, say in your backyard, I mean, that is, that is tremendous. And just if everybody adopted that, that would be enormous on even a national level, even, you know, in a town, you know, that, that would be huge. So it's just getting people to uh, change their ways of having perfectly manicured lawns. Uh-huh. And, and there's signage available. There's different things you can find to put in your yard so that your neighbors don't call and complain so that the city knows. And there's even like Bee City USA. There's different programs out there for this. So if you're interested and you want to learn more and you don't want your neighbors to complain about your yard, there's signs available. AFVGA is a proud sponsor of the Farming Basics podcast. From generations past through the years to come, the Alabama fruit and vegetable growers produce an abundance we all enjoy. Join Alabama farmers at the annual conference and trade show in Gulf Shores, Alabama, February 9th and 10th, 2023. Visit AFVGA.org to learn more. Alabama produce, it just tastes better. So we're talking about wildflowers, but which flowers uh, specifically are highly attractive to our pollinators? For at least here in in Auburn, Alabama, so here at Auburn University, we conducted a wallflower attractiveness study to basically assess the attractiveness of wallflowers to native bees. And what we found was that Indian blanket, butterfly milkweed, and blue vervain attracted great abundances and diversities, like different types of bees. But in addition to those, I mean, we would call those like our powerhouse species. Like if you're going to plant any, start with those three because they are they are really, really good at attracting pollinators. But in addition to those, spotted bee balm, lanceleaf coreopsis, gray-headed coneflower, they also attracted a lot of other pollinators such as wasps that are really important, uh, butterflies, beetles, flies. I mean, you name it these species were attracting them. So can I just go out and willy-nilly plant any wildflower species I want? Yes and no. Like, you can, but you really have to make sure that the wallflower species that you're planting is native to your area. You basically don't want to introduce something into your area that's not supposed to be there. So one way you can do this is if, if you're interested in a, in, a, in a wallflower species, let's just say Indian blanket, you can go to the USDA's plant atlas website and you can type in the species name and from there it'll pull up a map when you look at that map look at the area that you live in or where you want to plant and if that area is highlighted green that's basically a green light to plant that species if it's not green then you probably shouldn't be planting that particular wallflower species in that area just means it hasn't been documented there so again you don't you don't want to introduce something into an area where it's not you know normally found Right, we have enough invasive species oh, and yeah. uh, all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. And a lot of the beekeepers love it because some of them flower. <laughs> and it's a constant battle with the farmers of them spraying it, trying to get rid of it. And the beekeepers are like, but it's but so flowers. much pollen. So, so yeah. I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it's been a struggle. All right, so I've got growers out there. How do wildflower plantings help them? I've got to be able to sell this to these guys and girls out there that are growing crops for money and they're going to have to spend 
a little extra money to plant these wildflowers and cover crops and things like that. What's the benefit to what's the benefit to them? Oh yeah, so studies have shown by planting wallflower strips or like wallflower hedgerows alongside your your crops or like your pollinator dependent crops, even even crops that uh, aren't necessarily pollinator dependent, you you will still have some value in planting wallflower strips. So for pollinator dependent crops specifically, by planting wallflower strips, you're attracting pollinators to your farm, you know, to your agricultural system, and they those pollinators essentially spill over into your your cropland, and that can increase your yields for for your particular crop. But uh, all additionally, wallflower strips have also shown to decrease erosion within agricultural systems, and it, I mean it gets even better. So also. Other insects are drawn to wallflowers because they provide pollen and nectar uh, for, say, uh, wasp species. And certain wasps are attracted to those wallflowers. And they're also natural enemies of, say, pests that grow within those crops, within those field crops. And those pests that cause damage, you know, they cause damage to the crops. And if you're attracting those wasps, those wasps will eat that pest and ultimately will reduce, uh, yeah, the damage to your crop. So really, by planting wallflower strips or hedgerows, you essentially increase yields, decrease erosion, and decrease pests. So it, farmers will definitely benefit from doing it. And a lot of things do come down to money, and I try to never make recommendations to farmers that aren't going to benefit them financially and make mm-hmm. economic sense to them, because um, yep. my background is in economics, and that's what I know is important to them at the end of the day, and that's that's how they live. Um, and we've talked about a few ways to offset those costs uh, through different NRCS programs, but you know, is it expensive to plant a wildflower plot for these farmers? So it, it all comes down to which species you want to plant and how much of it, right? I mean, that's just, that's just the basics. Some, some wallflower species, the seed is harder to get. It's more expensive. You know, you can avoid those species. You can plant wallflower strips pretty inexpensively. I mean, you can go anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to like a few thousand, depending on how big of a wallflower strip or how many wallflower strips you want to plant. But, you know, it... The more money you put into it, the more money you're going to get out of it, essentially. So the more wallflower strips you put in, the more yield you'll have within your your crops. So, um, you know, farmers, and this is in addition to, you know, the, the, I guess, advantages of planting wallflowers for pests and uh, increased yields, Farmers have also been shown to, you know, if you're planting these wallflower strips, you can collect the seeds from these species and then sell them as, you know, a, a supplemental income. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have done this out west, and it seems to it seems to benefit the farmer, like, you know, another way as well. So it's not that expensive, or it's an ex- as expensive as you want to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, still probably cheaper than a lot of our insecticides, especially these uh, more expensive, newer chemistries out there that guys are trying to utilize to, uh, you know, use on a specific insect that they might be dealing with. If we can attract the natural enemies of that specific insect, it'll do our insecticide for us, and we can uh, utilize that extra money on another project or more more wildflowers and things like that. But so it, it, it's pretty inexpensive. How do I go out there and plant a wildflower pot, plot? So the first step that you need to take is – 
to reduce the weed competition. And this is the absolute most important step. Um, if you decide you want to throw wallflowers out now and basically don't do any prior, you know, prep work, it will mostly fail. I mean, I've seen it time and time again where, you know, farmers, landowners, uh, they just didn't do the prep work and, and too many weeds pop up and outcompete the wallflowers. So, you know, think of it as I want wallflowers, say, next year or the following season rather than like right now, because patience is definitely the key to take time to reduce those weeds. So you can do this by spraying herbicides like glyphosate, which is a broad spectrum herbicide uh, throughout the season. You can solarize your plots. Uh, you know, I really like ground. solarizing it, mm -hmm. especially for smaller plots. Absolutely. I mean, you can just use, even if you have an old you know, greenhouse that you have extra fabric, you know, plastic for. The plastic is actually kind of expensive right now uh, because of everything with, you know, petroleum products. But uh, it is it is a really good way to reduce weeds with that plastic sheeting. Uh, you could also continuously till the soil to deplete the, the weeds That's and right. the weed seeds. Um, I mean, these are all, you know, avenues that you could take. And but these are great tactics for anything that you're doing. A lot of farmers call and they're calling me right now in the, you know, midst of a season mm -hmm. and I'm like let's just spend this year prepping the land getting it ready so that you're set up for success so a lot of these tools that you're mentioning can be utilized across the board 100%. whether you're planting a wildflower garden or your actual crop definitely because at the end of the day you know whether you're prepping the soil for your crop I mean you want your crop to grow and not weeds right well right. think of like your wallflower plot is the same thing you want to prep it as best you can so you have, you know, wallflowers and not something else that's, you know, aggressively growing and it's going to take over your, your wallflower plot. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you are putting money into planting wallflowers, like you want to make sure that you you're actually end up with a wallflower plot, yeah. not just, you know, I don't know. Cocoa like grass. Random, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, especially down in Mobile, all the, yeah, all the grasses, it's, it's a huge issue. So, mm -hmm. you know. So what are some of the best resources out here? on pollinators so we can continue to learn more. I know we have some things that you and I work on together, like the planting for pollinators and things that I'm doing across the state this year. So, you know, if you see a flyer for that, make sure you join because Anthony comes and joins me and provides a lot of great tips and, re you know, the latest research coming out of the Bee Lab on these meetings. So, But what else is there? Yeah, so I've I've worked closely with the the Xerces Society for the past couple years. They're an excellent resource to check out. So you can check out their website, and also I've worked really closely with the USDA NRCS. That's the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Uh, they've been just fundamental in helping me, you know, establish some wallflower plots for research here in in Alabama. So. And the Xerces Society, I think they provide some of the signs, too. So if you're in need of that, uh, they're the end-all, be-all, in my opinion. I think they do great work. Oh, yeah. So definitely check them out for many for many reasons. And, and they're an excellent resource. Like, I mean, even what I told you, like, in terms of prepping the soil and everything, I mean, they, they can go into more detail about how to plant your wallflower seeds, you know, once you get your plots established, you know. And one thing I'll just throw out here that— some people may not know with wallflower seeds that's, you know, a little different than crops is don't, you know, cover your wallflower seeds with dirt. You know, those seeds need sunlight in order to germinate. So one thing I just want to throw out there is that when you're when you're seeding, you literally just broadcast your seed, you know, pack it down with a cultipacker and then that's it. I mean, you just let them do their thing. They're they're native, they're 
you know they've they've grown here for a long long time and they can they can handle themselves <laughs> so oh that's great resources i like looking on the website the xerxes website and they've got books and all kinds of literature out there so i mean if you really want to make a deep dive into pollinators you can learn more than anybody in this room about <laughs> pollinators uh, and you know you can farm pollinators and, and the wildflower.org I, I, oh, I don't know yeah. oh yeah, it, yeah. that's one of my favorites that's mm-hmm. a place I send a lot of people they've done incredible research putting together a database of all of the things that you need in your area it's mm-hmm. it can be hyper local things that are native things that grow in shade with mm-hmm. you know well-drained soils whatever you're specific desires are and needs on your land it seems like you can find the plant for you there and there's there's also another really good resource if you're interested in trying to just figure out what's growing like in your backyard you know there's a wallflower search that's a a really good website i mean you can put your coordinates in where you live what time of the year you saw the wallflower and then you can enter like you know the flower color how many petals it has how the leaves grow like alternate or opposite and it'll basically spit out pictures of wallflowers and you could essentially try and narrow down what you what you think it is. And that's so fun. I mean, that's really, really fun for people to get involved in and pique that interest. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing, people always ask me, you know, all of these resources, you know, reaching out, but like for Alabama, you know, for, or Alabamians, where do we purchase our seed? You know, where can I buy seed? And some of the resources that I've used in the past were uh, Prairie Moon, Check out Prairie Moon. They are an excellent resource. I mean, you can even, you know, filter your search results for the wallflower species just depending upon, you know, if you're into yellow flowers, you know, click the yellow flower button and, you know, all the species that are yellow will pop up. If they're, you can even search for fall or spring or summer blooming species to kind of, you know, you you basically want to plant wallflower species that are in bloom the entire year. You don't mm-hmm. want to plant just like go heavy on spring and that's it because then you, you won't have any flowers blooming in, yeah, in the summer Yeah, you want to keep the bees fall. hanging around. Absolutely, so yeah. there when you need them. Mm-hmm. And aren't you working with a company that provides a seed mixture for Alabama in particular? Yeah, so I'm also working with a company called Roundstone Seed. They have been an excellent resource for us so we're interested in certain species for our wallflower mixtures. We have multiple wallflower mixture types. So right now we have uh, two different wallflower mixtures that we're planting, one that has 25, about 25 different species, including native grasses. But then in another study that we're uh, about, to, about to start, we have a high-diversity wallflower mixture that has about 80, 80 or so wallflower wow. species in it. And they've been... Uh, yeah, they've helped uh, basically put that wallflower, you know, mixture, seed mixture together along with uh, Xerces Society. So they've been they've been helping us quite a bit with some of these projects we're working on. That's good to know. I can't wait for these to be. Hopefully, I'll get some good research out of this, and we can get those packets out to the public. I can't wait to try it all out and oh yeah, stay uh, tuned. Just, <laughs> just cover these, uh, cover every vacant lot with wildflower seeds. Yeah, I'm yeah. ready for yards to be. Non-existent, you know, with the manicured look. Oh, yeah. I almost want to just go around with, like, a salt shaker with wallflowers. <laughs> I <seed>. know. <laughs> Here, have Johnny some. wallflower seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, all right. So here's the most important question uh, that we're going to ask you today, and it's 
What's your favorite pollinator and why? So that's that's a really hard question. I mean, that's that's probably one of the hardest questions, and I I, I get asked that question all the time, and I really don't know how to answer it um, because there's because there's so many different bee species here. Some of them are you know the size of a, a grain of rice. I mean, but when when you look at them like in the field, you know they just buzz pat right past you. You just think it's like a fly or something, but then. When you look at it under the microscope, you're like blown away by how beautiful they are, are and just how different they are. Um, but if I if I really had to choose and uh, pick a species that's here in the United States, although I have to confess it is non-native, uh, <laughs> one of the species, one of my favorite species, is uh, the the orchid bee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I used to live and work down in uh, Davie, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and my parents live in Sebastian, Florida. And anytime I go down there and visit them, I always check out the plants because the orchid bees are always buzzing around. And they, they literally look like flying jewels. I mean, they are super iridescent green. And their mating biology is just super fascinating. Like... So the orchid bees, they're native to, you know, South America and Central America, and they happen to pop up in South Florida, just like many other, you know, non-native things. And basically what they do is the males will go up to, say, orchid flowers in their native range, but, you know, in Florida, they're going up to different types of plants and maybe trees that are producing resins and oils, like on the outsides, and the males will collect the, the uh, oils, like the fragrances, and their back legs are modified. Like, they're super swollen. Like, it looks like a boxing glove almost on their hind legs. And on that hind leg is just this little hole, and it's a pore. And the males will basically collect all these fragrances and pack them into their hind legs. And which is super fascinating to me, they'll go up to the females, and they'll hover in front of her, and they'll literally use their wings and waft the fragrance towards her. <laughs> and... If she wow. likes it, then she'll mate with them. They're on. So it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, even though it's non-native, it's, they're super fascinating and really cool-looking bees. So, And Google you could have these bees. flying around in your backyard. I mean, that's a whole other reason to get out and scout. And oh, yeah. Not see here, what's though. flying around. Not here, True. Not but there's still, yeah, all yeah. of the bees have, like, their little quirks and the things that they do. Absolutely. I mean, they, they even have, like, personalities like if you if you stare at bees enough you know like me in the field you start to learn how they fly like you know they, they each species really has like their own kind of personality if you can that's so amazing <laughs> oh i love this so much well thank you so much for joining us today so excited to be able to spotlight what the bee lab is up to and how it can help the farmers yeah thanks for having me this has been a production of alabama extension at auburn university 